This episode is brought to you by Rad Dudes Who Love Nature. Every creature deserves our conservation attention. Um, I know, even the, the ugly ones. Um, but when, <laughs> these, these are not ugly. <laughs> right, I know. This is like one of our most spectacular animals we've got as a country. It, like it's, it, it, yeah, we can't let this one blink out. Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. On this episode, we are delighted to have Brian Halstead, PhD, a research biologist with the U.S. Geological Survey, and we're going to be talking about San Francisco garter snakes. Uh, if you are from North America, anywhere from Mexico way up into Canada, or I guess even Central America way up into Canada, uh, you might be familiar with garter snakes as a really common smallish snake that you see a lot around water, sometimes a little further away from water, a bunch of different species of them. We're going to get into that a little bit. By the way, there are garter snakes, or what we call garter snakes in other parts of the world, not related to the North American garter snakes. The, the ones in Southeast Asia, I think, are, are actually uh, venomous, more related to cobras than they are to the garter snakes and water snakes of North America. Basically, they're all named after a men's garment that is no longer worn very much. Basically, before the invention of elastic socks, you would have this strap called a garter that you would put above your calf and then attach your socks to it. They used to be striped. And so these snakes resemble um, those now not much used garments. Anyhow, uh, it's a great conversation about a mind-blowingly gorgeous and rare species that just by the luck of biogeography and human history has ended up with its range pretty much entirely occupied by the San Francisco area. It is part of our interest in conservation efforts taking place in urban places. So if you know of a species that is being conserved or a rare species that's occurring in a city and work being done to keep it from from going extinct in those urban places or in that city, please let us know. We'd love to hear about it at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com, or you can tweet at us at herbwildlifecast. Find us on Facebook. Please also don't be shy to support us on our Patreon under the Wildlife Observer Network. Uh, you know, I don't think Tony or I ever expect this to become a real moneymaker or a way to earn our living, but a little bit of support does help pay for equipment and for hosting costs and things like that. We just really appreciate the vote of confidence that you show us when you chip in. Turning now to self-promotion, you can still get my book, Exploring Philly Nature, A Guide for All Four Seasons. And I've also launched a Substack newsletter about urban wildlife. So you can read more of my writing on urban wildlife at Where the Brown Snakes Roam on Substack. Uh, please subscribe and get your weekly urban nature writing fix there. Uh, so without much further ado, here's our conversation about San Francisco garter snakes. Okay, I'm Brian Halstead, and I'm a research wildlife biologist with the U.S. Geological Survey's Western Ecological Research Center. Um, I work in Northern California and Nevada, and I mostly study reptiles and amphibians uh, and also bats. Um, and oh. mostly what we do is we study things that are of conservation concern and uh, try to provide resource managers with information they can use to better conserve these often maligned species that I, that I tend to study. So. That's heroic work sticking up for the malign species. I love it. Bats and snakes and stuff. Um, so 
it's funny the, the listeners can't see this but uh your your zoom backdrop is a is a gorgeous um san francisco garter snake but for um people who aren't looking at one right now and maybe never never really heard of this before um set the stage a little bit like what is a what is a san francisco garter snake what does it look like you know where do they live what do they eat that kind of stuff all right well yeah um and it's hard to start talking about san francisco garter snakes without talking about their appearance first because they are probably the most stunning serpent in north america at least i think so um, i so think a lot of people kind of, think so <laughs> yeah <laughs> probably um yes yeah, so they have this like red coppery head and then um down their body they have these longitudinal stripes that um are bluish red and black in color and there are subspecies of the common garter snake that ranges from coast to coast that probably most listeners are familiar with um it just so happens that that those the garter snakes out here on the coast um of california tend to be really really brightly colored um and they eat mostly amphibians out here so um their favorite foods are probably with frogs so Sierra tree frogs and threatened California red-legged frogs, um, but they also can eat toxic newts. So the California newt and rough-skinned newt, um, that they can eat those despite the tetrodotoxin that those species um, have. So, and then what else? They range. Um, their range is restricted to the San Francisco Peninsula, so mostly San Mateo County. Um, there are no San Francisco garter snakes, as far as I'm aware, in the city of San Francisco, except maybe like at the zoo or something. I mean, the zoo, I'm not even sure if that's technically in San Francisco now that I think of it. But um, at any rate, um, and there are no historical records from huh. within the city limits. Um, that doesn't mean that they didn't historically occur there. It's just that by the time people thought to look for them, um, there were none there. So, And I have a question about their coloration. Um, mm-hmm. And I've, I've thought of this for years that a lot of garter snakes, not just the, 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 um, and my pronunciation of the Latin name is always terrible, but is it Sertalis or Sertalis? I always say Sertalis, but All right, we'll go I don't really know either. <laughs> um, but when you're looking at Sertalis, which is like the common garter snake, the one that's like basically coast to coast. Um, and then even some other ones like um, uh, the Plains Garter, which is, I'm forgetting its scientific name, but Radix, uh, I think. There you go. Um, that a lot of them sh- sh- exhibit red coloration, particularly as you get to the West. And, you know, the, the, you know, you've got a California red-sided garter snake, which is, not, which has got a little bit more black in between the stripes, basically, um, but looks pretty similar to a San Francisco garter snake. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, I've always wondered, is is this some kind of warning coloration? It seems like a awfully bright color pattern for for critters that, um, and if you're used to like, if you're in, in on the eastern side of the country, you know, garter snakes are like hawk candy. You know, like they're. um you know they're they're always get especially in the breeding season when they're not being too wary you always see them getting picked off by red tail hawks or red shoulder hawks um and i've always wondered like is do we know is there anything distasteful about them to avian predators or anything about that red coloration you know it's funny because i almost every year at the joint media pathologist and herpetologist i run into chris feldman from the university of nevada reno who studies tetrodotoxin resistance in garter snakes and we're always like, oh, we need to like, you figure out whether these snakes are sequestering toxins or something, and they're actually toxic to predators. Um, but it's incredibly difficult, as you might imagine, to get the permits to lethally sample uh, an endangered species. <laughs> so um, we haven't answered that question. He has found um, 
resistance in other species of garter snakes. Um, so that might be an interesting model to use um, to see. And but not all of them are brightly colored. It's right. really interesting. What makes it, the story even a little bit um, more exciting, you know, is or more intriguing, I guess, for me is that when you look at Temnophis elegans, um, the terrestrial garter snake out here, um, if you get farther inland, like in the Sierra Nevada, they don't have any red on them at all. But along the coast, the subspecies is the coast garter snake, and they'll have, you know, red, black, and yellow stripes. Uh. Um, much like a San Francisco garter snake, the head color is different. The stripe colors are a little bit different, but they have red stripes. So it's like, well, now is that mimicry then? And so you have, so there's like these questions layered upon questions. That's really kind of intriguing to me. It's intriguing to me too. And and you were referring to something that I'll just expand on really quick for people who aren't so familiar with it. Is that you've got um, in in garter snakes out west where you have high, relatively toxic newts, um, you've almost got everybody uses the term arms race where like you've got, it seems that you have, um, uh, you know, newts becoming more toxic and then garter snakes apparently having evolved greater resistance to those toxins over time. Um, and which can vary kind of locally too, like, or on a scale that's smaller than, than I, than you might think given the range of the newts and the range of the garter snakes. Um, but it's a neat topic. Yeah. It's, it's, it's something that does leap to mind when you see all these bright red colored garter snakes. Um, so I guess if I could ask you a little bit about their habitat also, I mean, they're the, in, um, in the Eastern United States, garter snake habitat is really easy to come by. It's just like anywhere you've got water, pretty much fresh water, pretty much you've got garter snakes. If you're in a lake a river, whatever else, if they can find fish and salamanders and frogs and maybe earthworms, you know, like they, they can usually make a living. Um, and so I guess, uh, is, are they inhabiting kind of the same spaces out West, just that out West, there isn't as much of those spaces. Like what, what, where do they live? Where do you find? Well, always with this caveat, you can't tell us like details about where exactly you find an endangered species, of course, but like, you know, what kind of terrain do you find them in? Yeah, it's exactly what you, you described and what you'd expect for garter snakes. So, um, you know, here you have, you know, garter snakes in, in, in or near most wetland areas. Um, and in, in fact, you know, as you get farther west, garter snakes kind of fill that ecological niche of the water snakes in yeah. the east. So we have really highly aquatic garter snakes out here too, like the narrow-headed garter snake and the giant garter snake, the two-striped garter snake, for example. Um, but yeah, I I find them maybe the Sertalis out here, the common garter snake, tends to be maybe a little bit more tied to water than what my experience has been in the eastern U.S. And that might just be because when you're not by water, it tends to be drier out here, um, unless you're right on the coast. So, um, but yeah, so marshes and ponds, um, especially if they have um, uplands, upland grasslands um, or shrublands surrounding them and, and not necessarily dense forest, um, those tend to be the areas that we, we find um, San Francisco garter snakes within their range. So, And is there, I guess there are subspecies, so I might be answering my own question, but is there much difference between them um uh, obviously there's a meaningful difference at some level but is there much difference between them and like the california red-sided garters that are more widespread and are the same species are they um are in terms of habits and everything else or are they are they sort of just like a a, a, a meaningful but relatively slight variation on the on the, the more widespread ones yeah that's a, a good way of characterizing it i i don't know you know 
different people will argue about you know the differentiation between uh san francisco garter snakes in california red-sided garter snakes um but ecologically i think they're they're pretty similar um okay you know i i haven't done enough studies of of red-sided garter snake or the california red-sided because there's also another red-sided garter snake um that to really differentiate the two of them gosh all right yeah there's a <clears throat> the the i, was, I think it is the California one Infernalis? Yes. Um, that's just one of the best subspecies names you got out there. Like it's basically calling it the infernal garter snake, um, <laughs> which I've always got a kick out of. Um, so uh, it, you answered a question I had because I was looking at the some of the documents. Um, the uh, the Whenever there's an endangered species, there's always an abundance of research. And then the Fish and Wildlife Service has inter- has documents that are great primers if you're trying to catch up on them. Um, and, and, and just had a question about the range, just because it's it sort of, it maybe it's because they're demarcating it by county, but it has that sort of stops right south of the city. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I guess this maybe feel like a kind of, this, this feels maybe like a little bit like another dumb question, but um, why are they endangered? So what is it, what is it, what got them on the list, you know? Yeah, well, it's a lot of reasons actually for these snakes so the first and most obvious one and probably the, the biggest reason is just urbanization yeah. um you know their habitat getting converted to other uses you know urban commercial residential development uh, agriculture things like that um and, and it's then not a big also, area to start with right yeah exactly it's a small area and it's one of the most densely populated areas in the country so you combine those two things and you know you're at a huge disadvantage when it comes to um persisting and then the other thing is as you might imagine for a really pretty snake was collection uh, for the pet trade and for breeding so um that was another big one and then the other thing is um kind of loss of their prey so it's kind of an interesting story um yeah, that california red frogs. To my, come to my mind right away yeah so go ahead yeah so california red-legged frogs are an important prey item for the species for San Francisco garter snakes, um, and they're themselves a threatened species. And back during the gold rush and, and for a time period thereafter, they were popular as food for humans. So California, or, yeah, the California red-legged frog actually- I just decimated. gave you a look, like how, how yeah. big is it? <laughs> it's What's not that? Like, a, like I think of like a bullfrog as having meaningful size legs to eat, you know? Yeah. Well, they're the biggest frog out here. Okay. So that's the native frog out here. So that's um, probably why they were the, the target for frog legs. Um, but then you actually um, kind of foreshadowed my next statement, which was, so when those frogs disappeared, they brought bullfrogs in, right? And so bullfrogs out here, you know, they're a nice native species in the East, but in the Western US, um, they're an invasive species. And they compete with San Francisco garter snakes for food. They can eat small garter snakes, and the garter snakes really don't. San Francisco garter snakes, anyways, don't really eat many bullfrogs. So it's a kind of a net negative interaction between the the snakes and the bullfrogs. So, um, so you have those introduced competitors and predators as well. Um, yeah. But those those three things I'd say are the biggest one: habitat loss and uh, fragmentation, um, collection pressure, and then. Um, loss of prey and introduced predators kind of go to get handed. Kind of getting it from all all sides. Um, yeah, I mean, and for those who aren't familiar with the the, the size of these species, I mean, uh, if they're like the eastern subspecies of garter snakes, these things, I mean, the the bigger the females are probably bigger. They probably might top out at like three feet, and then like the males yeah. are smaller. 
Um, and so a bullfrog, like pretty much metamorphosis, that's a word I always trip over, changes into an adult <laughs> at a size yeah. like almost too big for a garter snake to choke down. Um, and and so it's already, it's, it's the, the bullfrog already has the, I, mean, I think out here, I guess the snake predators of, of bullfrogs would mainly just be water snakes, um, which are bigger snakes than garter snakes. So it's, it's easy to see yeah. how they can't quite, how they, 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 it's a one-sided predation relationship. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and they're mostly eating the smallest garter snakes, you know, the neonates that, you know, the newborns, um, and maybe up to a year old, I don't think they're getting many adult snakes. Um, but it's interesting because when you go to the central Valley, you know, giant garter snakes and even common garter snakes out there, um, the Valley garter snake is the subspecies out there. Um, they grow much larger than the San Francisco garter snakes. And there they do eat, um, you know, not the biggest adult bullfrogs, but you know, the, the recent metamorphs and the tadpoles. So it's interesting how the dynamics really are so size dependent um, between snakes and introduced bullfrogs. Yeah, yeah. Um, neat. Well, sad and neat. It's it's a funny thing yeah. to think of. <laughs> um, we're always wherever you are locally, you're always dealing with other someone else's species as as <laughs> challenging invasives, and then it's funny to think of one of your own species as being a mess somewhere else. Um, yeah, and it's really you know troubling as a biologists when you travel to the eastern u.s different from the western u.s it's like okay i need to like the bullfrogs here whereas i hate them you know back home so it's like you, you have to kind of flip that switch and be like oh they're great where they belong but it's where they don't belong that we don't like them so <laughs> god if, if i if i if i travel to like i don't know I'm now i'm imagining traveling to like east asia and and being okay with trees of heaven and and japanese yeah. Maui and stuff like that <laughs> kudzu right <laughs> um so, uh, yeah, I guess, um, and just, this is maybe kind of boring stuff to get through, but, um, when did they end up on the endangered species list? Like when did, when did people realize that we've got a real problem with these guys? Right. So their listing actually, they were listed on the precursor to the endangered species list in uh-huh. 1967. Um, I can't remember exactly when the endangered species act was ratified but it was after that so they're on yeah, the early inaugural 70s. list yeah. yeah yeah so so they've been on the list longer than it existed technically wow. um yeah and so it's it's interesting when you go back to the recovery plan they first started doing recovery plans i think in the 80s and you know it's on you know typed out um you know scanned copies that, that i've seen and it's like yeah i can't imagine writing papers like that anymore. <laughs> i love reading those documents yeah so, i i yeah. uh I, I myself had a career as a as a, uh, a federal administrator um, in a different agency, um, very different agency, but still, you'd, you'd pull those things out of the files and you'd be like, man, someone spent a lot of time typing this thing out. It was just not, you, you couldn't just click a button and print it back then. Yeah. Uh, uh, so what can we, it, in my mind, I sort of have, it seems like a very static situation on the ground with the habitat. Like, I don't know. If, I guess by that I mean you've got like the waterways that they'll occur in, and then in between, I imagine you don't have flexible land uses. You probably have housing and and things like that where you can't just say like let's let's erase all these houses and somehow connect the habitat. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's right. What what do you do? Um, so what does recovery? What do recovery efforts look like? Like for a, an animal occurring in that kind of landscape. 
Yeah, so there are areas where there's substantial open space left, kind of in the southern and uh, western part of the range, sort of southwestern San Mateo County, um, where there is still some ranch land and stuff. And there are open space trusts um, and regional open space districts that are that work to uh, preserve those lands. So that, that's kind of the first step is preventing further loss and fragmentation. Um, then the next layer of that is, you know, you know, preventing the further loss and protecting those areas and then enhancing what's protected. So um, there's ways that they can, you know, manage wetlands, either to create more wetlands or ponds um, that are more productive for amphibians, um, especially the, you know, tree frogs and um, California red-legged frogs, which is great because that's also recovering the threatened California red-legged frog too. So you get kind yeah. of a two for one deal there. And then um, limiting invasive species. So we've worked with people that are trying to remove um, invasive fish and bullfrogs um, from, you know, small lakes and things. Which isn't easy. I mean, you sort of have, no. Yeah, how do you get rid of bullfrogs? Well, to say we were working at, they were going to drain this lake and then harvest all the bullfrogs. Is you know, other you know, the adults can disperse and persist and then just kind of really closely yes. monitor the adults coming back at this site there was fortunately no other water bodies close by that had both frogs so they are able to do it and the drought in like you know the 2012 to 2016 drought um dried the lake on its own so they actually were able to capitalize on on that wow. so um to my knowledge i think they've been successful in keeping bullfrogs and uh fish from recolonizing that site so that's been great but it is it's really difficult where you have large networks of wetlands or streams because you just have a constant source of new colonizers to get into those areas so that it's removing invasive species is really really difficult um and bullfrogs do tend to be a little bit less of a problem right along the coast so that's kind of an area where we we do have um you know some some hope for bullfrog free habitat um and then okay so i've mentioned stopping habitat loss habitat yeah. enhancements um one of the things so we recently um, worked with some geneticists um at our center here out at, in usgs to look at the population genetics of san francisco garter snakes and you know they're as you'd expect remaining populations are pretty isolated and for populations that we had samples for over time they're becoming more distinct and losing uh, genetic diversity. And so there's been a lot of talk about um, doing translocations or captive rearing to try to take care of a couple things. One is a lot of these populations are really small, you know, less than 100 individuals total. Um, wow. So to augment those populations where we can. Um, and when you're doing that, to pay attention to the genetic diversity and try to enhance genetic diversity as well. So... Like, and then where there's open areas oh go ahead sorry like so you could swap like you would breed them and then release the neonates or you'd like swap males around or something like that and see if they would stick around we're actually working on that plan right now so okay. we're, my lab is working on the the demographic plan so which what can, which individuals can you take from a population and minimize the effects to that donor population sure because you don't want to you know take snakes until they go extinct at your donor population either and then which snakes you put back into the new populations or the, the existing populations to be augmented um to in increase your chances of establishment so we're working on that piece and then um our 
geneticist collaborators, um, Dustin Wood and Amy, Amy Vandergast, they're looking at um, what is the best strategy to kind of maintain the historical genetic structure, but also enhance the genetic health of these populations. So there's, there's a there's a lot of considerations when it gets into the genetics. It just kind of makes my head. Spin well, you just bit. said that it, it made me before I was like, Oh, yeah, just move them around. But then if you're concerned that there might be something dis- historically distinctive about a particular population, you don't want to swamp that. Um, it, it, are, do people, I mean, I, I think of this discussion much more when people talk about plants, you know, they get concerned about particular local, what's the word ecotypes of, of a particular mm-hmm. plant species. Um, so you can't necessarily take seeds of some goldenrod from, Tennessee and or this is what is said that you can't take like seeds from some goldenrod in Tennessee and like use them to to revegetate habitat in Pennsylvania or something like that on a lo- smaller scale are there concerns about that with like like are, would you consider like I mean because you think that like with salmon you know salmon might have like a specific genetic profile for specific genetically defined population for a given river does do you worry about that on the scale of like a stream or a marsh and for garter snakes it it kind of depends upon the degree of isolation okay you know, how, how far is it what's in between and how long has that been there yeah. um that you know there's like i said this it gets really complicated really fast but there oh, is yeah. like <laughs> and, and so yeah you're exactly right you don't want to genetically swamp a unique population or subpopulation and with the garter snakes it might not be quite this severe but the classic example okay. i can think of is like uh florida panthers right yep they were in real genetic trouble. They had a lot of deformities, a lot of trouble reproducing. And coincidentally, that's one of the first in markers um, in the liter- that you read about in the literature for snakes that are suffering from inbreeding is that they're, they have a lot of deformities and really reduced fecundity or um, birth rates. So that's a real big problem for snakes when they become um, genetically isolated and deteriorated. Do you, do you see that with the San Francisco garters? We don't have enough information. Um, okay. You know, we do have some information on litter sizes, but we don't really have any information about, um, you know, are those um, newborns all healthy and recruiting well into the population well and stuff. And I think in the larger populations, it probably isn't a concern, but it might be a concern in some of the smaller and more isolated populations. Okay. Um, the, the, the example of that um, from the literature is like, um, some adders on an island in Sweden, for example, they were okay. really doing poorly. And then they introduced some males from another population and they did just, they started doing much, much better by that, just that infusion of new genes. Yeah. Um, and you were alluding to the the panther or the, the, the mountain lion situation where they took some, I think some males from Texas or something like that. And right. Exactly. In. Exactly. Yeah. And that was a huge controversy at the time. Like, well, then they're awesome. not going to be Florida Panthers anymore, you know? So yeah. I don't think we're to that level of, of controversy of the snakes, but it, you know, at at the extreme, it becomes: do we let something go extinct, or if by worrying so much about genetic purity of a, a, a lineage, or do we, you know, yes. save it um, and not have what we consider to be a pure version of it? Um, and that's a question that um, that's for other people to make those <laughs> to answer those <laughs> questions. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, a they, they, it is heavy stuff. It it is because yeah. you're, it, it's not like it's also not like you're meddling with some pristine situation. You're you're trying to remedy a, a a, a problem that we've cr- very much created, um, through human action. Um, yeah, and and what I'm talking about here is definitely 
way more extreme than what we're dealing with with the snakes. It's just that the the point is that when you move things around for conservation, it needs to be very, very carefully thought out. It does. And and you haven't even mentioned pathogens and things like that, that you might move. Right, exactly. You might infect one population with something from another population. Um, yeah. So Brian, Brian, I just the thought occurs to me. I, I I decided to match Brian's background with snakes of my own on Zoom, and chose <laughs> and chose a, a pile of gestating um, timber rattlesnakes. Um, but where you've got uh, a, a, a pathogenic fungus that's been um, a, a, a point of controversy and concern um, in the in the snake world in general, but also especially the timber rattlesnake world. Um, I guess yeah. I just thought that up. Does that does that show up out west? Are you guys seeing the 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 fungus? So yeah, so we've done surveillance with giant garter snakes and San Francisco garter snakes um, for the fungus that causes snake fungal disease, and we haven't found it in either of those species. Cool. Um, there was a positive detection of the fungus in, I believe it was a king snake in Northern California, oh. um, and so there is continued surveillance for it. Um, but to my knowledge, we haven't had it, to, at least not to the extent that you do in the Eastern U.S. A lot yeah. like white nose syndrome with bats, you know, or it's maybe it's marching out this way, just like white nose syndrome did. And hopefully it doesn't have as drastic a consequences as that did for the bats. Man, I sure hope so. I, I, so we've seen it out here where we used to, have, little brown bats used to be one of the most abundant bat species in mm-hmm. like urban areas here. And now they're essentially gone. Um, yeah, and sad. A few years ago, I was, um, I was in Kentucky, and uh, this had to be like six or seven years ago. And white nose had just reached out there, and so it was sort of like we've been watching it kind of go across the continent. Um, and then we also have the example of the were the red-legged frogs affected by um, the oh, geez, the chytrid um, fungus that's been hitting frogs, or is is that not so much a problem there? Um. So that's a really good question. While we're going through all the horrible fungal yeah. <laughs> exactly. pathogens. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of populations that are persisting with the fungus. I mean, it's really hard to find places where uh, the fungus that causes mycosis doesn't occur out here. Um, I don't know if it might have contributed to past declines potentially. And certainly in the Sierra Nevada, it's decimated uh, populations of uh, mountain and Sierra Nevada yellow-legged frogs. Um, so we know that, it, you know, for stranded frogs out here, it can have dramatic consequences. I think they've demonstrated it with Cascades frogs too. It can really decimate them. But the red-legged frogs tend to occupy a little warmer area that might be a little bit less suitable for the fungus. Um, that's not to say that there are there weren't effects in the past or, or that there's not, you know, either reduce survival at the population level or other things um, that are going on that where the fungus is affecting the frogs. Um, but it's not um, as much of a concern for California red-legged frogs as it is for some of the other rannids out here. Got it. Okay. Well, that's good at least. Yeah. It, mm-hmm. you, you, your, your comment about things happening in the past is, it's an important one that I'll, I, I, I wish people, well, we'll remind people that like we haven't been studying critters like this carefully for all that long in the grand scheme of things. Um, and I once wrote an article about this for a magazine here in Philadelphia about um, we, in PA, in Pennsylvania, we've got a few frog species that um, that seem to have gone through declines in the mid 20th century and no one knows why. Um, and you got ideas, but no one, it wasn't studied. And so we just don't know. 
Um, but we have things like uh, chorus frogs and cricket frogs and um, northern leopard frogs, and spadefoot toads. It's a variety of of, of frog species um, in in Pennsylvania that might be actually kind of common in New Jersey, just across the river. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, sixty years ago, seventy or eighty years ago, they they went into decline. But no one was no one was like studying them carefully, and we just can't say what happened. Um, well, maybe yeah, museum records though. are. Oh, I should say museum collections are really helpful there because I know that um, some groups out here have tried to reconstruct the arrival of the chytrid fungus um, in California, and and there's some evidence like for foothill legged frogs that um, you know that they they may have caused past declines, um, and the timing is kind of coincident with when they detect. BD in museum specimens. A BD is short uh, okay. for Trachochytrium dendrobotitis, which is the. Why would you shorten pathogen. that word? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> um, well, in any case, uh, yeah. So, what does the future look like for the the San Francisco garter? Like, what what are the? It's what are the goals in conservation recovery at this point? Yeah. So, I can't remember off the top of my head. But I think the recovery plan calls for like ten populations of two hundred or more snakes at a fifty fifty sex ratio. That you know that's. Uh, when they write these recovery plans, they have to have criteria. That might be really difficult to achieve, um, but um, I don't. I'm. I think full recovery is going to be really difficult to achieve. I think persistence is possible, um, and I think just the knowledge of of kind of the genetic plight of the snakes, the amount of attention that it, it garners, and there, there's a ton of talented people out here working on conserving these snakes, whether it's, you know, resource managers at, at federal, state, and local agencies, um, the zoos are involved, um, you know, there's just consultants. There's a lot of people that are really concerned about these snakes and trying to make sure that uh, they don't blink out on our watch. So, um, yeah. so I'm optimistic about persistence, but about like recovery and delisting, um, I think that's a, a little bit steeper hill to climb. Okay. Well, I, I hope someday to see one. I, uh, it's, it might have to be a well. We'll see. I, I don't get out west all that often, but <laughs> it's a it's a goal, um, and it's just such a it, every every creature deserves our conservation attention. Um, I know, even the the ugly ones. Um, but when, <laughs> these these are not ugly, <laughs> right? I know. This is yeah. like one of our most spectacular animals we've got as a country. It, like it's. It, it, yeah, we can't let this one blink out. Um, yeah. So I appreciate all the work you're doing, and, and thank you very much for coming on to talk to us about it. Well, thanks for the invitation. I'm happy to, to share, and uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. Hey, folks, again, thanks for listening. And if you have ideas of species where conservation work for them is being done in cities, again, this can be that they're just their range happens to be where human cities have grown up or maybe this is a species that is has a has a wider range but uh in a particular country or a particular locality that it only happens to occur where there is a city and thus conservation occurs there are even species where they aren't particularly rare but people living in the city don't want to see them go away and work to protect them we'd love to hear more about these kind of examples and get them on the podcast thanks